Hey everyone, you're listening to GNU World Order episode 18 of season 13 for 118 2019. I think I want to tell you about Community Enterprise Linux. You may have heard of it. It's called CentOS. That's what it stands for, Community Enterprise Linux, or Community Enterprise Operating System, I guess, CentOS. Anyway, that's what I want to talk about in this episode, because I've been using RHEL, which is Red Hat Enterprise Linux, on my laptop at work for the past couple of months. I say this as as a weird kind of surprise, because I don't use RHEL. I've used RHEL on a server in the past, uh, an in-production kind of, you know, actual actual use server. Like, people actually have been using this thing, like a whole, you know, hundreds of people. I've used RHEL on uh, a web servers, or, or rather CentOS on web servers, and and I just I I've really not had a great experience with with RHEL on on a workstation as a computing operating system, which has been fairly frustrating for me because I kind of took a liking to Fedora way back uh, around the Fedora eight days, whenever that was. There was this old podcast which you may or may not know called Linux Reality. And they're, they're still out there. You can actually listen to them still today. Some of them are still relevant, some some less so. But it was by this guy named Chess Griffin, and it was a great show. I loved it. It was one of, it was the show that kind of well, it got me into Linux really. I mean, I was already into Linux, but it, it solidified Linux for me. It because it explained it to me. It explained that there were these technical conventions that I could go to. It 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 just kind of it 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 really it was kind of the entry, the gateway into into the whole world of of publicly using Linux and being proud of it, that sort of thing. And this show was talking about Fedora, and th- there was this other show at the time. Actually, this is a little bit of a, a secret. There was this other show. I'm not going to name it. There was this other show at the time with these two kind of bombastic characters on it, and they hated Fedora. They they went on and on about how horrible this Fedora release was, and they annoyed me so much that I decided, you know what, I'm going to take Chess Griffin's advice and actually try Fedora, because he was quite complimentary of it. So I, I tried it out and kind of, you know, got used to it. And boy, is that the kiss of death. You get used to something on a computer, and you're basically going to use it for the rest of your life. Or you're going to you're going to expect everything to work like it for the rest of your life. Even when you're changing things, you want it to work like that. Makes no sense, but that's how we are on computers, apparently. So I started running Fedora on a computer for which Linux offering was fairly slim. Fedora was one of the, I think, maybe two or three... Well, I guess it wasn't so slim. But still, I chose Fedora for this computer. It was working really well, and and I I really got used to Fedora because it was it was just ran really well on this iBook. And you just get used to it, you know. You get used to the way the package manager works. You get used to the desktop. You get used to this and that. And so, try as I might to switch to something else here and there, it just wouldn't it would not take because I was just too used to Fedora. So my point is that I got really excited about Fedora. I was really into the fast development pace of Fedora at the time. Wouldn't you know? Got a little bit older, started using Fed- uh, Linux in the real world, and I realized that that fast development process of Fedora is actually not all that great all the time. I mean, it's great for what it is. And I wouldn't take that away from them. But I started thinking, gee, wouldn't it be great if there was a long-term support model for Fedora? And everyone looked at me and said, yeah, it's called Red Hat Linux. I mean, that's what Red Hat Linux is. It is the long-term support version of all the code that goes into Fedora. Red Hat takes that, throws out what they don't want, puts in what they want, what they need, and they release it. And they charge for it, or they charge... They charge money for support for it, and I thought, well, that sounds great. And then there was this CentOS, and there was Scientific Linux, which basically just went to Red Hat and pulled out all the free stuff, 
and re just repackaged it. They weren't. I don't think they were allowed to. Well, yeah, they couldn't just go to Red Hat servers without getting a contract and getting access to the to the packages. And they couldn't pull the packages out and just republish them. So what they would do is they would pull all the packages, rebuild them with their own branding on them, and they would release them. So that was what CentOS was, C-E-N-T-O-S. And uh, the other one is Scientific Linux happens to do the same thing. They take the packages, rebuild them, make sure that there's no Red Hat branding in there, or Fedora for that matter, and then they release them as their own distribution. It's fair, you're, you're actually, it's legal, you're actually allowed to do that, believe it or not. So I gave them a try. I went, I went out and I got a CentOS disk and I installed it on a laptop and I tried running it for a while and I just found that I could not main, I could not keep that up. I could not keep it as my, my main operating system. And it made no sense to me because everyone had told me that it was basically Fedora except stable. But it's not Fedora, except stable. It's very different than Fedora, except stable. It's, it's, it's all the good stuff of Fedora, stable, but all the wacky stuff that Fedora throws into its repositories, not included in CentOS. Sometimes it can be very difficult to get the things that you want if if you if you have an interest outside of kind of the mainstream office user kind of requirements, it can be very difficult to build a CentOS system that comes anywhere near a, f a Fedora system. And you think, well, it can't be that hard because you could just go to Fedora repositories and download the Fedora RPMs and then install them on your CentOS machine or your scientific Linux machine. So it, surely it's not that difficult. No, you'd be surprised. It's actually pretty difficult. Because what, what ends up happening is that you, you go to the Fedora repositories, and you download, uh, let's say, FFmpeg, and you, you try to install it, and of course it tells you, well, this isn't, this isn't meant for, this is a Fedora RPM, and you're, you're on CentOS, so you cannot install it. The, the strings just don't match. Alright, so you go and get the source RPM for the Fedora thing, and you install that, and it says, well, you can't install this because you need the ZNBI codec, if that's even the real codec. ZNDI? Something like that. Trust me, there's something that starts with a Z. I see it every time I install FFmpeg right there at the bottom of the list before it flies off the screen. And so so you go and you grab that codec, and then you you, you, so you install that, and then you install FFmpeg. Still can't do it. You, you need you need this one. Okay, so you go get that one. You rebuild that. You install that. Well, you can't install that because you need something else. So you go to get that. So now you're now you're you're spending all day trying to track down all of these dependencies and dependencies of dependencies and possibly dependencies of dependencies which have dependencies for the dependency, and 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 it becomes unrealistic. You just realize, well, there's no way I'm going to do this. I might get it done today. I might spend all day and get everything installed, but then if I ever need to update it, there's not an update. There's no way to update this automatically. There's no stream for the updates. So I would have to do all of this over again. So then you think, well, everything's scriptable on Linux, so I should just do this in such a way that it's scriptable. And then you realize that there's no way to predict what the future updates are going to be for this particular package. So even if you did script the wgetting and the curling and the, the rebuilding and the installing and the upgrading and stuff, you, you wouldn't know what values to punch in for all of those different components. So it's just, it's not realistic. Okay, so that didn't work out, and I, I really haven't messed around with CentOS or RHEL, for that matter, in, well, certainly five or six years now. Since being in New Zealand, really. I mean, that's not entirely true. I've run Fedora on a Raspberry Pi, and I've run Fedora on this or that. But, I mean, in terms of trying to get really off of Fedora and onto uh, the, the long-term stable release, it just hasn't happened. And that's been frustrating, because I, as I've said, I really quite like Fedora and the way that it works, and the, the, the package management, and all the things that they kind of put together and assemble. It just really, really works well for me. I'm not saying that it works better than anything else, I'm just saying it's very familiar and comfortable for me. And I've, I've, 
sort of flirted with the idea of, well, maybe I should, maybe I should get comfortable with OpenSUSE. I mean, it's a really stable and solid operating system. Their their support goes, they they backport stuff like ten years or something ridiculous like that. Um, it's it's not a bad option at all. And and there are times where I kind of just wish that I'd gotten involved in OpenSUSE early on, and then I'd I'd be someone who ran OpenSUSE by default rather than or not by default, but if I can't have Slackware on a machine, I would I would just fail over to OpenSUSE, and it would be beautiful. But that's not how it happened. Fate dealt me this cruel hand where I'm, I'm really a fan of Fedora, and Fedora is just this fast and crazy and reckless distribution that has really doesn't care about what breaks on your computer. It's just going to keep updating things. And like I say, that's good. It, ha- it That's important to happen, because I think that Fedora has made some of the the most exciting, progressive things have come from Fedora, so that's really, really cool. I just want that that snapshot. I want that long-term support. So I was getting a new computer at work. The The one that I had uh, was a hand-me-down from someone else. I actually don't even know. It wasn't even in, this, in the system, in the IT system. It was assigned to no one, including not even to me. It was just it was a laptop that somehow I had that no one knew how I got it. But I, I got it officially. I had it from official channels and promptly installed Fedora because I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to run RHEL on a work laptop. I have to get things done, so I'll, I'll install Fedora. And I did that for, for about two years, and then finally it died, like the hardware died. And uh, so I got a new laptop, and it came with um, Red Hat on it, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And I thought, well, I'm going to just try to run Red Hat Linux because I need to keep, I need to get back to work because I'd been without a laptop, so I'd been working on work stuff on Slackware, which was fine, but I needed to get back to a work laptop with, you know, where the data was where it was supposed to be. So I, I decided I would run Red Hat for a week just to see, just to see how painful it was. I, I would just, check in with it. It's been a, it had been a while, so I figured, why not? I'll, I'll give it a go. And I have to say, it has been absolutely fantastic for several months. I've really, really enjoyed it, and there are many things, there are many reasons why I should not have enjoyed it. So, the first notable thing, I guess, would be that there's the GNOME desktop on this thing. There's no KDE here. I think I could probably get KDE if I tried hard enough, but I did hear rather loudly through the news channels of, of the Linux world that KDE was being uh, excluded from from the next Red Hat release. So if I did get it, it would have to be from some extra channel somewhere, and I don't know where that is. I haven't even looked into it, actually, because, like I say, this has actually been working really well for me. And there's a little bit of a caveat here, and that is that I do tend to be able to separate my work day from my normal life day, and I I tend to be able to switch on or off certain modes of of computing, at least. Uh, A lot more, actually, but definitely computing. And so if I go to work and use something that I'm not that I wouldn't usually use in real life and then I go back to real life and I'm using something completely different that's not that big of a deal to me so in other words I'm fine with my work headspace being in gnome for instance and then going home to KDE that works out pretty nicely for me because I I just I don't know I can I can get into different modes I mean that's how I learned the Dvorak keyboard. Of course, then I took the Dvorak keyboard home with me, as it were, and now I use it at home as well. But it used to be just a, a at-work thing. I would just use it at work, and then I'd come home to a QWERTY keyboard, and I felt like, well, that way I'm, I'm, I'm keeping myself alive on both on both layouts. Ended up being that actually Dvorak really is a lot more pleasant than QWERTY, so I just I couldn't get away from it. But, but that's how I started that. So. The the rel thing being very very good to me at work could be a little bit colored by the fact that it is a work thing. So it's it's my work day. That said, it's a laptop, and 
I've used it during personal hours as well, and I haven't hated it. So, I don't know. It, it's actually really, really working for me. Couple of different qualifiers here and there, but let's let's kind of let's take a look at this because this is something to to actually analyze. I think this is something that's that's worth looking at. And before we get in too deep into it, I should mention I may or may not work at the company, or at, at a company heavily involved in the production of Red Hat Linux. Let's just put it that way. I'm not saying that I'm speaking in that capacity. I'm just saying, if you were to suspect that I had been convinced to do this podcast at threat of maybe losing my job or something, you would be incorrect. But you could well suspect that were you to realize that I have um, connections to the company of which I speak. However, if you've listened to me since 2008 or 6 or whenever I started this thing, you'll know that I've been using Fedora for ages, as well as Slackware. Um, in fact, I even had, you may not know this, actually, I even had a podcast at one point called Fedora Reloaded, and it was a show, in addition to the New World Order, it was this other show that was exclusively about Fedora Linux. So that's that's where I'm at. That's that's kind of what my history is with with this in with this operating system. Okay, so the advantage to CentOS, uh, well, okay, yeah, let's let's take it like this. Let's say the advantage to CentOS slash Scientific Linux is that it is the stable version of Fedora. So if you if you are fond of Fedora, if you like the way that it works, if you like the choices that they make when they're adding features to GNOME or or when they're enabling features or when they when they choose to take their sort of their snapshot, um, if you like the way that their package management systems work, if you if you like their art, if you like their choice in themes and and all that other stuff, if you're comfortable with Fedora, then you will you'll likely be comfortable with CentOS and Scientific Linux, insofar as it is the same, basically the same environment. And there's something there. There is something to that because I I do feel like there are certain problems with other other Linux distributions that I just can't seem to get around. And it's probably down to unfamiliarity, not being as comfortable with those that as I am with Fedora or Slackware. But it's just one of those things that that kind of blocks me from from taking the relationship further sometimes because it's just yeah, it's not Fedora, it's not Slackware. There are things that I don't understand happening here that are annoying me and so I'm going to not I'm I'm going to choose something else. That's just the way it happens. And CentOS and Scientific Linux have have sometimes not been the thing that I've decided to to fall back to for one reason or another. But now that I've tried recent editions, and I'm speaking specifically about 7.6 here, uh, that that might change. So the stability is a great thing, because y- you tend to install something, uh, CentOS or Scientific Linux, and it basically stays the same. You 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 are locked into what you have, and that sounds crazy. But remember, you're talking to someone who runs Slackware in real life, and so the idea of of getting an operating system and having a version of software that has been delivered to me and stays the same for heck three years, five years. Do your worst. I'm fine with this. And and the bizarre thing is that there are other distributions out there known for their long sort of life cycle that somehow manage to have older software than the stuff that I have on CentOS or Scientific Linux or or Red Hat. It's really, really strange, and I don't understand how it works. Uh, maybe it's just the selectivity of, of, of what Red Hat, the choices that they're making. Like someone up there is saying, yes, I am going to update this Lua package because it makes sense to update that, but I'm not going to touch FFmpeg because that would be insane. And somehow I agree with, or not even somehow, I agree with that. That that to me makes sense. Whereas other distributions, I've seen them just never update anything for, for five years practically. 
and I don't understand why anyone would do that with with something like like Git. Like, why wouldn't you update Git, or at least give me the option to update Git? So there there are little little weird things like that. And again, there may be avenues in these other distributions to provide me with what I want, and I don't know about them. I'm getting them for free, as far as I can tell, with CentOS. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty nice, and something to to enjoy because you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get you get the the comfort of Fedora, the conservatism of Red Hat, but with weird selective progressive streaks here and there. And again, I can't explain that. I can't explain why they're making those decisions. But maybe that's ultimately maybe that is part of the Fedora spirit is that I like the way they manage the things that they manage. In fact, if if you're gonna if 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 you came to me and said, "Look, you're gonna have to run an, a Debian derivative, you're gonna have to run Ubuntu or something," I would I would be fine with that as long as I could run Mint, because Mint, I feel I feel Mint is much like in a in a weird way CentOS or, or Red Hat or Scientific Linux. They take I mean, the weird thing is, I, I think they actually take, unless they've changed it, but it used to be that they took took Ubuntu and and modified Ubuntu to to create Mint, which is weird because Ubuntu takes Debian, so you're, you're sort of two levels of abstraction away. But Mint always was very very precise in what they would update. They would do lots of security updates, and then they, they even graded their updates at, at one point. They may still, but they, they would sort of, they would give them grades as, so that you could choose. You could, you could look and say, okay, if this one has a green check mark by it, that means it's safe to update that. This one's yellow, and, and so that means that they're not too sure whether I should be updating it. I mean, I could, but it could break something. And then this one's red, meaning it's completely experimental. And I loved that. I, I thought that was really, really a clever way of of, of managing the, the the sort of automatic update thing, or not automatic, because you could you could go in there and sort of change things around. The other thing about CentOS, except not CentOS, uh, about Red Hat specifically, is that, and I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, is that they do quite literally have support contracts. And as I was saying, I think, in in a previous episode, or, or maybe I imagined that I said it, that is quite unique these days. You, you can't call a company anywhere anymore for support on anything. Once you get it home, that is your problem. But with Red Hat, they actually do have avenues of support. And those avenues of support start at like forty nine dollars. It was sixty dollars back when I, when I had my um, there was a, it was a self support contract, but I think it was specific. I want to say it was an academic. It, it was marked as an academic thing or something, and you you got access to all their online knowledge based things. And I think you could even ask questions. Like you, it wasn't just a read only type thing. You you but it was online. You couldn't call someone up. So at $49, I think you get that. There's another one at $99 for the developer's suite. I'm not sure what, what you get on top of the $49 thing for that. But but above and beyond that, if you actually want, like, I'm going to call someone and tell them that I'm having a problem and I'm going to get help from them, then you can pay, like, I think it's like $300 or something, which, you know, for Linux, that sounds expensive. But for an operating system, that's not expensive. People would have paid that gladly for for any other closed source operating system, and you can literally, yeah, you can call people and say, "Hey, this didn't work. I'm I'm installing it and it's not working. What can I do to get around that? What can I do to to make this work?" And they'll help you. They may not help you solve it by by this afternoon, but but they'll be on it. It might take them a week to get around to a final fix for you, but they will be on that problem. It's not a problem that you have to research anymore. You can just walk away from it. So that's a big deal. Now that's that's just with Red Hat. That's not with CentOS or Scientific Linux, but, but it's worth mentioning. 
So to experience this for yourself, um, dear listener, you can probably figure out how to do that. I mean, if you've ever installed Linux, then this is pretty standard stuff, but I'm going to kind of talk through some of it anyway. Um, first of all, the, the ISO images are available from CentOS.org. I don't remember where Scientific Linux is. I haven't installed that myself lately. I know it's still active, I just haven't installed it lately. And then Red Hat, redhat.com slash en slash store, I think, is how you get the, uh, the, the different support contracts. And then once you buy the support contract, they send you a link to the installable, the disk image that you can download. And then you have to sign up, you have to marry your install with the server, with, with their, their Red Hat management suite or whatever it's called. It, it, it used to be RHN. It's not RHN anymore, luckily, because RHN was horrible. They've got some new thing now, and it's it's a lot easier. You can sign up. You can sort of go online to your little account, and you, you tell it, yes, I have RHEL installed on this computer, and that's an authorized thing that I'm paying for. And so, you know, th those two now can talk to each other, and you can get all the updates and stuff like that. And that's a benefit of the support contract, is that you get all of the Red Hat updates, like, the day they come out. For personal use, I don't know how exp how um, how really important that is, to be honest. Probably the schedule of CentOS would be fine for you if you're just running it on a laptop. But there's the option. Let's go get a cup of coffee, and then I'm going to talk about the install process. Not, not a step-by-step, -step, just what I experienced upon installing uh, CentOS and, and Red Hat both. But let's be reasonable and first have coffee. got my cup of coffee. I'm assuming you do as well. You know, it's funny, I was thinking as I was making my coffee how weird it is. Like, I've used Fedora for eight eight years or something like that, nine years, something like that. It's, it's been a while, and, and yet it feels weird now to be speaking about it. I feel a certain amount of apprehension because I happen to work for the company that, or I may or may not happen to work for the company that that produces, or, or that sponsors Fedora, and certainly produces both Red Hat, and I guess in a way CentOS. I mean, the people producing CentOS, as far as I know, are getting paid by this company. So, and it feels weird. It feels like I'm, like I'm advertising for them or something. But that's ridiculous. I've, I have used and promoted their product f since 2009. They should be paying me. Wait, I, they are paying me. Anyway, it feels funny to you know, that relationship, especially in the Linux world, I guess, because you, you do so much volunteer work quite happily, and then one day you start getting paid for it, and now all of a sudden you feel conflicted because you're talking about this thing, and is it disingenuous to be talking about... It's silly. It's silly. Uh, so don't email me, in other words, accusing me of being, like, a, a company shill or anything, because I I helped build this stuff, like, way back in 2009. I mean, not not really. I mostly just hung around the forums and and talked about things. But I was a user and a promoter and a podcaster, and it's fine for me to be talking about this. Okay, so CentOS. Don't spend a dime. Just go get CentOS. It'll do you. It, it'll do everything that you need. That said, if you want support, seriously, Red Hat offers support. I cannot emphasize this enough because I know that it's a critique of Linux that well, there's no support, or well, there's Nobody knows. There's no documentation. There's no way to get help. All this other weird stuff that you hear, even to this day, about Linux. And you can point at Red Hat all you want, you know, and say, there are support contracts. Now, in the past, I wouldn't do that, specifically, because I didn't find Red Hat usable <laughs> on, on, a, on a workstation. I just thought, th there's no way I would put this on a computer that I own, and therefore I'm not going to promote it. I mean, I would promote it here and there if 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 push came to shove, where people were just like, well, there's just no support for this thing, then obviously that's a false statement, and I cannot abide false statements. So 
I would tell them, well, that's not true. There is this thing that you could do, but I wouldn't tell people about it in the in the in the sense of, oh my gosh, you should try this. This is a great computing experience. And now I am actually here to genuinely tell you, oh my gosh, you should try this. This is a genuinely pleasant computing experience. So download CentOS or, or Scientific Linux, but I, I'm speaking for CentOS because that's the one that I installed on my personal computer. And, and I'm speaking about Red Hat because that's the one that I have on my, my, on my work laptop. And I, I just haven't, I happen not to have tried Scientific Linux lately. So some, I've tried it before, but I don't want to speak about it um, because I could, there could be differences that I'm not aware of. So when you download it, just get the, the full DVD, install, install the full, the whole thing. Don't get the minimal image if you're putting this on a desktop. And you'll, you'll boot off of the, the media and you'll get the normal Fedora installer. It's called Anaconda. It's been fairly recently. That's not true. It's like, geez, six years now. But I was at the Flock, or was it called Flock then? I think it was called Flock then. Maybe it was FUDCON back then. Either way, I was at the convention, at, at the conference where we were designing this thing. We were, we were actually designing what, how it would go, how it would work. It was really cool. And, you know, there were some weird choices that were made. I, I still don't understand some of them, but they pervade in GNOME, so I assume that it was a... I, I assume that there was a, a bigger picture being seen by somebody here. For instance, on the installer, there are buttons like the done and the next button, and you know, the buttons that you click to, to continue through the installer. And for some reason, they're in the upper left corner, I think? upper left corner for a done button, I think. Maybe it's the upper right, but I think it's the upper left. It is exactly where you would not expect it to be. And and I keep thinking, okay, well, it's some kind of phone. They're mimicking a phone interface, I think. But I don't even think on phones, I don't think that the, I don't think that the next button would ever be on the left. Would it be? I, I, I'm not really sure, but I, I just, I know that the installer process is very unsettling. However, it's very parallelized. You can you can kick off the installer and 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 while it's installing, you can go about the other business like uh, setting I don't know setting time zones or setting your actually I don't think you, can you do that I'm not sure but you can create your user and set a user pa a root password and set your domain name and little things like that. And then when you when you start the thing up, you get wait for it. A EULA, yes, and uh, end user license agreement. You, you, there is a screen that that tells you to click. You know that you accept the terms of of the of this software. That was pretty unsettling. Uh, it's it's not offensive though. I mean, in terms of the the thing that you are agreeing to is not offensive if you read it, but it, it is unsettling to see that on a on a Linux distribution. But there you go. That that is there. Okay, so beyond that, once you're done all of that stuff, then you get into this weird start, sort of a, a start wizard thing that that confirms things like um, your loc. Do you want location services turned on or off? Of course, off. Uh, do you want? I mean, unless you want it on. Uh, and then, do you want to connect social accounts like a Google account, a NextCloud account, or a Microsoft account? Um, so the NextCloud connection is probably worth doing. I didn't bother doing it yet, but it is there, and you can add it later, but that was kind of nice. That was convenient that it sort of presents you with that up front. And there are a couple of other options I don't remember. I think it had to do with the keyboard layout and stuff like that, but I'd already set that in the installer, so it didn't didn't really matter. So already, I know, you're thinking, wow, this sounds like a lot of screens. And it is, but it's all kind of part of the install process, really, in your head. You, you install, and then you reboot. You sign the little EULA, you go through the startup wizard, and then you go, and then you're dropped into the desktop. So you log into your desktop, and now there's one more screen to get, get through, which is the getting started GNOME help screen. And as much as I would like to say that this annoyed me, I have to be honest and say that it was, it was actually, I could see that it was going to be useful. I naturally ignored it, but it was I could see how for people who weren't used to gnome that would have been a, some really great information and it had all the usuals and I knew that it was spot on because one of the main things that they addressed was how to change the wallpaper and I guarantee you if you give a computer to any user out there and they have nothing better to do they will the first thing they will do is change the wallpaper it's just something that we are 
we are trained to do. And and by trained, I mean, I think it's human nature, honestly, because I don't think anyone ever trains anyone on it. It's just, I don't like that wallpaper. I want to look at something different. I want to look at a picture that is pleasing to my eyes. And so you change it. And I knew that this screen was was correct, psychologically correct, because they had that as one of the main things that you could do. But they had other stuff, too, really useful stuff. Uh, and, you know, once again, like, argue that Linux doesn't have documentation, but there it was. There were a lot, there were videos, and there were things that you could read. I mean, it was really, really nice. So that impressed me. I closed it immediately, but boy, was I impressed for a couple of seconds. All right, so then you've got your GNOME desktop. And, you know, I'm a KDE user. I'm a Fluxbox user. I don't really mess with GNOME. But when GNOME 3 came out, I remember looking at it, and I said, I'm pretty sure you could probably find the episode where I say clearly that it's quite nice. I mean, it really is. I, I have to admit, it is really nice. And now, this is probably influenced by two different things. One, actually maybe three. One is that I'm on KDE 4 right now. And KDE 4, as much as I love it, I mean, it's it's looking a little bit dated. You know, I, if I boot into Porteous, which I have on my thumb drive here, if I boot into Porteous, I get KDE5. And I I just, I see the difference. You know, it's really, really, it's really prompt. I, I, I boot into it and I think, oh my gosh, I'm on KDE5 now. This is, this is really nice. This looks pretty. And then I go back into my Slackware one and I think, oh yeah, this one's running KDE4. I remember that. It's all right. It's familiar, you know, but I mean, you know how, you know what I'm talking about? Like when, when there's that new desktop out and you know that you've got the older one, you start after a, a year or two of running the old one, you just start to think, yeah, this is looking a little bit old. So there's that itch that you get eventually. And so GNOME 3 probably scratches that itch a little bit. It looks modern. It seems different. It's got lots of things going on. So I think I'm probably influenced by that a little bit. Once Slackware 15 or whatever it's going to be comes out, and I get KDE 5 on my desktop, maybe GNOME 3 won't seem so impressive uh, again. But but for now, it does. It seems pretty impressive. And then the second thing is that I think there is a little bit of strangely nostalgia because when GNOME 3 first came out, I was running Fedora and uh, stock Fedora, like whatever you know, whatever they released is what I put on the computer. And it was GNOME at the time. Well, I mean, it's always GNOME, I guess, but it was GNOME 3, and I had that at, uh, at again, one of the computers at work. And it was nice. It was fine. I mean, it was, it drove me crazy sometimes, but I saw the, va- I, I saw what it was doing, and, and I was impressed, and I kept it on my computer because I felt like that was something that I should learn. And I'm, and I'm actually quite glad I did, because looking at it, looking at GNOME 3, and looking at really any variety of KDE, I can see how certain personality types would probably prefer GNOME 3. I think they're crazy. I think they are giving up a lot of flexibility and power, but it, it, it's that doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they prefer l- fewer choices, I guess. You know, and it's weird because GNOME 3, one of the things that it does is it it, it actually causes you to click around a lot more and that drives me absolutely crazy and so I end up unless I force myself not to I, I generally end up doing everything in the terminal because that's faster I mean and to be fair I do I honestly I generally do that on KDE unless I force myself not to but on on GNOME 3 you know it's like you want to extract something well obviously you would think you'd go to your file manager and you would right click on it and choose extract on KDE that's what you do you right click extract and then you tell it where to extract. Do you want to extract here? Do you want to auto-detect the subfolder? How do you want to do this? Now, you can also double-click on it or, or whatever you have to do to get the little arc manager or whatever it is where it opens up the archive as a directory. And then you can choose the things that you want to extract and drag them to where you want. You know, But nope, I, I, I don't do that. But on GNOME, that's the only option. You have to you double-click on an archive, and instead of even... like unarchiving it just opens it up in an archive manager and you have to physically drag the thing out of the arc it's really really strange or i think there might be a button to extract all either way it's a lot of clicks and i'm just not used to having that as my only option i thought surely there's going to be an extract thing uh, a menu somewhere but as far as i can tell no there's not you have to extract something in in a gooey way like Phys- you know, like sort of dragging and dropping. You can't just right-click and menu select 
extract. There's just no such thing. So it's either either you do it this way, or you go to a terminal and do it yourself. Why anyone would ever want that, I just, I don't know. And yet, I'm living with it, and I'm enjoying it. It's fine. So there's a couple of things about GNOME that don't work, apparently, right now. Um, one is that the default CentOS setup, the, the, the one that it, inherit, it inherits from Red Hat Enterprise Linux, is kind of this GNOME 2-like arrangement. And if you know anything about me, dear listener, you know that I did not like GNOME 2. I know that it's very classic for a lot of people. It was probably a lot of people's first Linux desktop because it was pretty popular for, I think, a pretty long time. And, and it was on, you know, it was the default for Ubuntu. It was the default for Fedora. It was, it was kind of the reigning champion. And I just really didn't like it. So they, they try to emulate that in Red Hat Enterprise Linux and on CentOS, and it's just painful. And the way that it emulates it is that they pre-install about eight different GNOME shell extensions. And the way that you modify the GNOME shell, like on, on KDE, the way you modify stuff is that you just do it. You just have access to everything, and you change stuff. But on GNOME shell, you have to sort of install these extensions that are done by special people somewhere on the internet who understand how to how to change settings on GNOME. And it, it's it's kind of annoying, and, and in order to even have access to that, you have to install this thing called GNOME Tweaks, which is bizarre to me, that in order to configure your desktop, you have to install a separate application called GNOME Tweaks, because GNOME Settings is insufficient in itself to configure the desktop for which it serves as the settings panel. That makes no sense to me, but that's the model, and it is a valid model. It is it is a modular design. It is saying, this is our base, and people who want to change our base can install extra stuff. And, I mean, you have to admit that, that there's some sense there. So, these tweaks, or the, this tweak application, you can open it, and then you can go to Extensions, the GNOME Extensions tab, and you can deactivate all extensions. You can apply the changes, you can log out, log back in, you can reboot. You can do any number of things, and for whatever reason, at least on CentOS 7.6 and Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.6, I know I'm really selling you on this right now, right? But trust me, this, this, all, this all actually gets better. Um, but for some reason, 7.6, it just doesn't do it. It doesn't. It never turns off the extensions. They are always there. So you have to manually go in and do a sudo rm-rf-user-share-slash, uh, I think it's gnome-shell-slash-extensions. Uh, slash, you could just get rid of either the whole extensions folder or everything in the extensions folder. I don't think it really matters. But you have to, you have to physically or, or manually delete the files yourself in order to actually deactivate them. And then after you manually manually remove them, I think you can just log out and log back in. Could be wrong, you might have to do a full reboot, but I think you can just log out and log back in. And then you have what what I knew as the Fedora, you know, GNOME, like the stock GNOME. The, the thing that GNOME ships is what you're left with, which is what I was used to. I, 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 don't, I don't... I never was used to GNOME 2, really, and certainly when I, when I, when I was messing around with Fedora without Fedora KDE, it was GNOME 3 as it shipped from GNOME. And it's, it's quite an, an interesting design. I quite like it. It's, it's pretty clever. A lot of people I know it annoys a lot of people. I think it's really nice. That said, I have GNOME tweaks, so the little things that annoyed people, I can fix. And in fact, a lot of them are already fixed for you on CentOS and Red Hat. So... For instance, I, I don't know if it's still a thing, but at one point, GNOME famously shipped with only a close button, I think. It didn't come with the minimize or expand button. Something weird like that. And, and so GNOME Tweaks was the way that you could get those buttons back. And those buttons just exist for me, so I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's something that's changed in GNOME or if it's something that GNOME Tweaks added. Anyway, let's get, let's get this thing usable, right? So we've gotten rid of the... the the weird GNOME 2 tweaks, and that's, for me, that's a, a, a severe improvement. After that, um, there are a couple of things that you'd want to do as well, and that is to install EPEL and RPM Fusion. And those are projects that boost your default CentOS and Red Hat repository selection from being a paltry, just what an enterprise user might need, like, you know, a bunch of 
office software and developer toolkits to stuff that a normal computer user would want, like media players and music editors and graphic applications and all these, these other things. So I guess the first sensible stop, I, I guess, would be probably rpmfusion.org, and honestly that's probably realistically possibly the only stop that you would need to make. I mean, that's the, that's the big one, RPM Fusion. And right now, as of this recording, it has a, it has a repository specifically for RHEL 7 and CentOS. Now, I imagine that that probably doesn't have everything that the Fedora repository has. I could be wrong. I know that, that for a while it didn't, but then again, it was also, at that time, there was, um, they were still catching up, really, is that they were, is what was happening. They just hadn't caught up to, to the, uh, the updates of, of RHEL 7 and CentOS 7. So maybe it's on par now, I'm not sure. But you can install that, and it's just, a, it's a quick and easy sort of pseudo-yum local install dash dash no gpg check with this, the, the, the RPM for the, for the repository. And then when you update that RPM, or, or rather when you update the, the database, your, your yum database, it, it asks to import the GPG key, and you do that, and then you're good to go. EPEL is available from the Fedora servers, which is dlfedora.project.org uh, slash pub slash EPEL slash 7, I think. You go in there, and you can dig around and find the, the repository RPM and add that to your system as well. And after that, you've got everything you need. You have you have all the the tools that I consider essential, like FFmpeg and Ardour, and I think I think I checked for Ardour. Um, I don't know all all the all the different applications that you would want that you wouldn't normally find in just the the Red Hat or CentOS repositories. Now I also installed the Flatpak uh, stuff, meaning there's a Flatpak Flatpak Builder Flat. Pack, f- flat pack devel and then uh, most importantly perhaps flat pack uh, xdg desktop portal that gets your system familiar with the idea that there are going to be these flat pack refs that you will occasionally download from the internet and and so make the application installer the graphical package installer uh, application make that available to deal with those kinds of files and we'll do exactly that to get started with with this Flatpak integration. So you go to Flatpak, no, yeah, Flathub, rather, Flathub.org, and there's a button here called Quick Setup, right right at the very top here, Quick Setup. So don't browse apps, just, just go to Quick Setup, and it's got an array of various logos, and here's the CentOS one. They've got one for Fedora, they've got one for Red Hat. So I'll go to the CentOS. I mean, they've got a lot more than that, I'm just those are the ones that are relevant to this discussion. And it says Flatpak is installed by default on CentOS 7. I don't know if that's... Maybe that is true. Maybe I installed... I, I thought I reinstalled it when I was just really just confirming that it was installed. But anyway, it says, when using GNOME... Um, oh, to get started, all you need to do is enable Flathub, which is the best way to get Flatpak apps. Just download and install the Flathub repository file. So I'll click on that button, and... Yep, that offers to download, or to open in this case, because I have that XDG Flatpak portal installed, uh, to open the flathub.flatpakref in the application installer. So I'll do that, and now that that opens the application installer interface, which is patiently awaiting my OK to install the Flathub repository. So I'll click OK to that as well, and that'll take a while, because it has to download, you know, all the stuff from Flathub and to kind of figure everything out. Um, now it'll also probably, this whole process, I, I'm probably going to have to do like an OS update, I imagine. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm just kind of guessing that since this is a fresh install, I'll have to do a, a pretty major update. So we'll let that kind of run in the background and check in on it later. So we've got EPL, we've got RPM Fusion, we've got Flatpak going in the works. We could do Snap, but um, I won't for now, just because that doesn't really have any fancy UI integration. That's just a, a terminal thing that you would do. A couple of other things that I had to do to get the the environment a little bit more comfortable for myself was figure out where in the settings different things that I was used to, you know, in KDE or in Fluxbox, where where to drop stuff. And and there is a... Um, the, the GNOME settings actually is 
while it is strangely absent, and that is that's a weird thing. Between GNOME settings and GNOME tweaks, you're never 100% sure which is going to be which is going to have what option. So you end up every for everything you're looking for until you're I guess used to it. You're always opening both, trying to figure out which one has the startup application setting, which one has the 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 turn off this annoying feature of of GNOME setting. You know, and you're never really 100% sure. But in this case, it was the GNOME settings, and it has these startup application offerings, and you can choose even just a shell script that you want to start up. So I, I, I use that to start up like Xmod map to make sure that my control key or my <laughs> caps lock key turns into a control key, and little things like that. And okay, so I've had to press pause because I, I had to wait for all these updates. The updates have finished. Flat hub, flat repository. Uh, the flat hub repository has been installed. And now I have access to flat packs through my normal package, my, my normal uh, software installer interface, package kit, or whatever it's called, within, within the GNOME environment. So if I do a search, for instance, for, for GIMP, and press return, I get two versions of GIMP available now. So I have the default version, which is 2.8, which I don't want. And this other one, which is specifically marked as being provided by FlatHub, the 2.10 series, and that, that is, of course, what I want. So I'll install that instead. Same thing comes up for Inkscape, for instance. Here's Inkscape, two different versions. I've got the version that, that CentOS packages, and I've got the more recent uh, FlatHub version of that. And and the same goes for everything on, on FlatHub. If it's on FlatHub.org, it's now in your package kit, your your application installer. And I have to say that is the smoothest experience that I've had with one with any of these sort of cool new package formats. Now granted I haven't tried Ubuntu and and to, to experience its integration with, with Snap packages. I imagine there's something very, very similar there as with this, and I, I, I will try that eventually, soon. I, I want to start building snaps pretty soon here, so I'll, I'll give it a go to see to see what kind of integration it has. It might even be smoother. Who knows? Maybe it's pre-installed there. I mean, probably I'm going to venture to guess Flatpak integration is pre-installed on Fedora, just because it's, it's Fedora, but who knows? I, don't, I really don't know. I would have to compare these things, and, and I don't know that I'm that committed to discovering how pre-installed these things are, but I do like the the end result. Whether I have to install it myself or whether it came pre-installed, or after whether I had to enable it or whatever, the end result is really really smooth and it's it's well marked. It says this one's provided by FlatHub, so you know why there are two different versions of a thing. You can see the version numbers, you can see the difference, and you can choose. You can make an intelligent choice. I think I'll use this one instead of that one. Have I tried installing both? No, not yet. I have not gone down that avenue, and I should probably at some point, just to see what happens. I mean, theoretically, it should be fine. There should be no, I mean, certainly no technological conflict. I am kind of curious now uh, about how the application presents it to you. Does it does it identify something as, you know, Inkscape Flatpak, and then Inkscape not Flatpak? Or, you know, how, how do you know one from the other? I, I don't know. But certainly flat flat packs can coexist on a system. They don't they're discrete entities once installed. Okay, I've talked myself into it. So now I'm installing both the 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 CentOS version of GIMP and the flat pack version of GIMP. Uh, the flat pack is predictably taking a lot longer to install because it is obviously a lot larger in size. Well I shouldn't say obviously, but it is. It is larger because it's got all those dependencies. It has to it has to grab, you know, all the the um those what are they called platforms are they called platforms I forget I just did an episode about it and I've already forgotten what they're called but yeah it's gotta it's gotta get that stuff but I I, I wanted to just kind of mention as well as I'm going through this and and this is pr this is clearly obviously a Slackware user talking here but wow the application installers are looking good these days I haven't seen a graphical application installer in a while I guess or I haven't bothered using one in a while I, I guess but they look really nice. I mean, they've got the name of the application, they've got a short description, they have a rating system, which I guess is okay, uh, they've got a screenshot, sometimes two screenshots, this this GIMP uh, one has two screenshots, and then a little description and a link to the website, 
details about it. For instance, it's localized in your language. It does not include documentation. Um, system integration, sandboxed, it's not any of those things, because I'm looking at the, the CentOS one. The license is free, a big green button that says free. Updated never. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, version 2.8.22-1, EL7. Developer is GNOME, and the source is the base. And there's even little app reviews down here at the bottom. That's pretty neat. I mean, it could get messy, I imagine. But, I mean, it is. It, that's pretty cool for someone who doesn't know what they're getting themselves into, potentially. That could be very helpful. And, this, and, and that's both for the, the CentOS version of it and the Flatpak version of it. They, they both have these, what they're, you know, this is the app stream data. And, and it's actually got it. It, it. It's leveraging it. It looks really, really slick. And again, this is, you know, obviously a Slackware user speaking here, because probably to many of you on, on any other distribution, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's, that's what Linux looks like now, Clat2. Okay, so I'm, I'm typing in GIMP. And yeah, it does look like the the menu, the GUI menu, simply displays two GIMPs for me. Um, there's no way, as far as I can tell, to differentiate them. That's that's not good. So okay, so th there's one way, and that was the the first one that I clicked on was 2.8. So presumably, maybe the theory could be that they're showing it to me in order from left to right, of less. Yeah, less to to more recent, to older, to, to you know, the, by by numbers, the least is on the left and the the greater is on the right. So that that kind of works, but that's a little bit that's a little bit rough around the edges. I think there are a couple of things about Flatpak I I feel that just yeah, a little bit rough here and there. But that's pretty neat. I mean, I've got two versions of GIMP installed now. Not that I would ever need to go back to 2.8 for anything, to be honest. But there you go. That. They exist, they're coexisting, they're not conflicting. That's pretty neat. Now, to be fair, there's as excited as I am about all of this, I, I, there, there's stuff that's not going to be available. This isn't Fedora, this isn't Slackware, it is it is stable Fedora. So there's there's a conservatism here, that, and that, that's the price that you pay. And you might think, well, that's the price that I pay for Slackware, right? And that's true. I mean, if, if you are... If if the platform, if the CentOS platform is appealing to you and it's working for you 95% of the time, and then you need a couple of 5% packages tacked onto it, it isn't impossible to either install something from source yourself or to build your own RPM of something. You can do that, but but I want to mention it because it's 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 worth mentioning. Uh, for instance, I could go to I'll go to the application installer here. And I'll just do a search for Ardour. I don't actually use Ardour that much, but I, I, I like it. It's something that I enjoy and I think is a really great application, and it's not there. What about Jack? Jack is not... Oh, there it goes. Jack Jack doesn't exactly come up. It kind of does. Jack Connect comes up. That's not... This is inaccurate, so this is not correct. I know that Jack is available, and I don't know why it wouldn't come up from a search. This is... This is kind of this is every this is every time I open up a graphical application installer. Like it's just one of those things. I, I eventually reach the point where where for whatever reason it falls apart. I just don't understand why <laughs> why it wouldn't just show you something. So there's there's no jack. Ah, okay, hold on. Here we go. No, still no Jack. That's really interesting. I'm going to, not to troubleshoot this uh, exactly as you're listening, but but I'm going to do a search, a, a pseudo yum search for Jack. Put in my fake password and wait for that to happen in the background. Uh, oh, it didn't even have to wait for it. So there's a Jack Audio Connection Kit. It's right there. So it does, it definitely is available to me. I, I believe it's through RPM Fusion, maybe? But yeah, if I search in the graphical, the, in this package kit thing, this fancy application installer just does not come up with anything as if though it doesn't exist. That's very interesting. And and that's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you hit that sort of wall every so often, really just once for me. And I think, well, now the whole, the, the I can no longer trust this application to give me 
accurate reporting of what's available, and then I don't use it. That's, that's every single time that I try to use a graphical installer. So anyway, in spite of that issue, but I mean that's what I'm saying that there, there are there are flaws here, right? So if you're if you have standards, super high standards, like me, um, if, if you're used to Slackware or something where you have everything that you need when you need it, no matter what, then then this m this isn't exactly what you're looking for. So if I do a s um, just to make sure that there's no ardor, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it sudo yum search ardour and, and the the one that I'm actually yeah there is there's definitely actually no ardour so I'm the one I'm actually thinking of is Q tractor I'm just kind of curious as to whether they've got that available and no that's not available either so that would be Q tractor I actually use that's kind of the one that I I tend to default to now if I if I'm just in the market to make music and I don't necessarily care where which one I'm using then I could do for instance how about if I just search for, I know this is going to fail, D-A-W, of course not. How about music? Music comes up, there's Muse Score, that's for uh, notation, and that would probably do in a pinch. But here's LMMS, that's the one that I was actually kind of trying to find. And LMMS is a perfectly respectable tool for, for music making. So so if if you didn't necessarily care about what it was, you just wanted a solution for the thing, then then you're pretty well set up. And that's kind of what I actually wanted to demonstrate here, is that, that between between CentOS with RPM Fusion and between but be, between that setup and and with FlatHub, you have a really, really good approximation to a, a really flexible system like Slackware, where where you want something and you can find either the thing that you want or something that resembles the thing that you want uh, without too much trouble. And like I say, if you really, really needed to, if, if something is an absolute must-have, you could just go and pretend like you're on Slackware and go get the source code for wget and then roll your own RPM. RPMs aren't necessarily as easy to build, for instance, as a Slack build. Uh, you have to get to know the spec file format and stuff, which actually I did an episode on that for Hacker Public Radio, so you could go listen to that. Uh, but once you kind of get used to it, it's it's not so threatening, and you can you can you, you you get used to it. So I've been using Fedora long enough, I guess, to have to have become comfortable with with RPMs, with with building RPMs, and and certainly. Once you have a good base system like CentOS and RPM Fusion, where a lot of those dependencies are easy to get, the workload for getting CentOS is not all that isn't really all that scary because now you can grab CentOS, or you could even grab a, a, a package maybe from Fedora or something if 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 QTractor is there. Grab that, get the source RPM for that, rebuild it as a you know from source RPM to a to a normal RPM. And then just install it, and and anything that it depends upon, you probably have access to through RPM Fusion anyway. So you don't have to go hunt those down separately. You just tell Yum to install them, and then you're done. So that's it. That's that's the review, the 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 excited and and passionate review of of running CentOS or Red Hat as an actual desktop. And the reason I'm excited about this again is because it's it's a stable Fedora, and Fedora is a lot of fun. So if you like Fedora, but you want something a little bit more stable check this out. Try it, run it on something, see what your experience is. Let me know, by all means. Um, let me know if I'm crazy or, or if, if I'm correct, if it is actually as exciting as I think it is. I'm just excited about a, a stable RPM OS that is actually usable. That's a big deal to me. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. 
My username there is at clatu at mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. to get plenty of stretched muscles and displaced organs